0: Love, talk,
1: radio. Black Abolitionists by Benjamin Quarles Continued Cassette 3, Side 2
2: Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator and author, Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African American experience
3: Dr. Walker Greason has joined us. He's the CEO of the International Center for Metropolitan Growth. That's a company that was dedicated to the uh revitalizing working class neighborhoods. He's also an author of a new book, Suburban Erasure, how the suburbs ended the civil rights movement in New Jersey. And, you know, so um, good stuff, though. Yeah. Now, what's your take on uh, the Black abolitionist
0: Benjamin Quarles? Yeah, Quarles. Okay. yeah, no, it's groundbreaking work, and it was so important because it opened the door to really take a new perspective on African American history. Is that you know the, the entire field uh, or the profession of history has only really been around for a little bit over a century, and books like Quarles' um, work by uh, Carter Woodson. Uh, these things, and, of course, Du Bois, they started to open new eyes about people of African descent actually having um, a past worth studying. And so that was, for me, the most important piece of black abolitionist, is it begins to show African Americans as active shapers of their own lives and experiences. I had my own article coming out later this year for the Encyclopedia of Greater Philadelphia that uh, talks about the African-American role in shaping um, the city of Philadelphia from 1790 to 1850. And there's this huge piece that comes out of Quarles' work uh, that I hope hope my article will will do a good job in emphasizing, is the shift in the reasoning among African-Americans in how to combat the reality of inequality in the United States. And so before about 1830, 18, certainly 1840, um, African Americans generally, in, the free blacks in the north, tended to argue that it was a degraded condition of slavery. Um, the, the experience of not having access to education and then living in a condition where you're held as property, as chattel, that was the primary cause of racial inequality in the United States. After 1840, when the free blacks in the North, as a group, recognized that the bigotry, um, the hatred, was as deeply rooted in the so-called free North as it was in the slave South, that they begin to then say, "No, no, this is not about how African Americans' experiences shape inequality. This is about rampant prejudice. This is about just discrimination against." people who are black, regardless of how well-educated they are, where they live, what kind of job they work. That shift only takes place in the early to mid-1840s. And so for most of the first 50 years that the United States existed, even people of African descent kind of were, were blaming themselves for the conditions they experienced. And so mm-hmm. what we think of as abolitionism, where you get people like Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman's Sojourner Truth, that's all this 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 cultural product of free blacks beginning to say, no, the problem and the onus for change lies on the side, not just the Southern whites, but Northern whites as well, that must begin to change their behaviors. And that's a a revolutionary process that, you know, we don't talk enough about. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, it's probably more so responsibility in the North uh, to acquiesce to what was going on in the South. And uh, a particular piece that I like in the book, uh, some of what I heard tonight was the establishment of schools Mm. and libraries uh, that were open to white and black, and the motivation for that. And um, I'm wondering if any of those, or are you aware, if any of those uh, schools that were mentioned, are they still around today? And uh, I think Cincinnati, Philadelphia, Baltimore. Have any of those schools survived?
0: Or do we know? Um, yeah, the extant buildings. Most of them have been torn down. The one place that stands out to me from in that period in Philadelphia is in Cheltenham, is uh, Camp William Penn, where black soldiers had trained to fight in the Revolutionary War. And this, this was uh, just, I guess, uh, north of the city of Philadelphia. And basically that, that camp, you get a historic marker there, uh, Charles Bloxon put up a marker there probably, I don't know, 8, eight 12, no, 10 or 10, 12 years ago. And um, that I would say Camp William Penn is one of the sites, um, the Institute for Colored Youth that eventually became Cheney University uh, in okay. the 1850s. You know, there are markers and kind of uh, extant remains of buildings that are there on, on the campus. And so mm-hmm. you you get bits and pieces, but so much of the architecture of the black abolitionist community. Mm-hmm. My favorite one in Jersey is the Timbuktu site that Rutgers University is presently excavating. excavating. So um, you have a few, but they're, they're rare.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay and uh who is Bloxson? I believe the oh, name Oh Charles Bloxson.
1: Yeah, uh, an
0: amazing historian and archivist at Temple University. Uh comes out of Norristown, Pennsylvania and he's dedicated his life to uh tracking down rare books concerning the African American experience. He has uh, his own small library of I think probably 3 or 4,000 uh different volumes that um most of them, you can't find any place else in the world, and so he's he's been an amazing um, preservationist, someone who has made sure the stories of African American freedom and and the struggle for justice is really preserved, especially the voices of African Americans themselves. It's not waiting for their, our story to be told through through the eyes and and perspectives of um, kind of white observers. So he his collection is absolutely invaluable. Folks who have a chance to get to Philadelphia to get to Temple and take a look at that—you know—some of the books that you can't find anywhere else.
3: Exactly. What
0: was Blockson's, uh relationship or connection to William Steele? Oh, he is uh, one of the people who I believe he found um, Steele's notebooks that had been hidden for for decades, and so he actually is one of the folks most responsible for. How'd I say it's basically proving uh, the genius of William Still in sustaining that network and, and organizing how people came and went through Philadelphia and where people could hide. And I shouldn't say just through Philadelphia; it's mostly the uh, small towns. Like I saw you did a show last week on uh, Christiana. Um, it's all these small rural communities out along the outlying edges of the Philadelphia area that were absolutely crucial to get people out of Virginia and out of Maryland um, and get them up through New York and out through Ohio and and into Canada. So, um, yeah, um, Charles Blottson is is inextricably linked to preserving and revealing uh, the genius of
1: William Still.
0: So the book that he found, was that uh, William Still's
3: account of, uh, Mm -hmm. of the story of his ancestors escaping on the Underground Railroad?
0: I don't think it was just William's Still's account of his ancestors. I thought it was the uh, notebook that documented kind of the, the way the operations of the railroad went. And I'm going around to check really quickly. But that's my recollection. When the uh, book was found, uh, it seemed to be more extensive than just one family in the discussion. Okay. Well, did it
3: include Bloxson's family? Um, oh, I'm and- sorry. I'm sorry. I misunderstood
0: your question. Um. Well, I believe no, so no. I I believe... Go ahead Yeah I, I do think it involved how um, Some of Charles Blossom's ancestors Came to the, the Pennsylvania area yeah, And I, I'm looking back It's been you know Probably how many years since I was at Temple
3: <laughs>
0: it, It's been Almost a decade Since I was around Temple regularly But um that was my understanding is when the book was found. It uh, involved some of his family that had come to the area. And what year um,
3: was the Christiana, uh, that activity in that area, Christiana? Um, uh, the Christiana,
0: um, Christiana. Free and, free and, people call it a riot, but I don't find it. It's not like any of the other riots in the Philadelphia area. It was uh, 1851. So it's, again, after this turn took place towards kind of more aggressive, more radical defense of African-American equality, both in terms of gaining equal rights in the North and um, ending slavery in the South.
3: So it wasn't exactly a right, but there was some activity um, where uh, slave catchers were coming into Christiana and uh, being fought off by the local black folk there, was it not? Absolutely. Yeah, that was that was the main issue. Or some would call it a rescue.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now this this is one of the cases again where we're just coming to grips with how how frequently people um stood up, especially when you get across southern um southern Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania, uh into Delaware and New Jersey um we this Christianity is not unique. you know there are cases where just regularly folks who were helping slaves escape stood up and not just kind of uh, dissembled or lied to avoid conflict but would back down um slave catchers or judges who attempted to intimidate um them into turning over escaping slaves, escaping africans who who were trying to really take take their lives back.
3: Mhm. Can you uh give us any details on some other uh rescues such as uh Anthony Barnes, for example. Give our listeners some
0: details on that. Yeah, the one that I'm I'm I love talking about the most is a man named um Colonel Ty during the American Revolution. Uh Ty was basically a slave who was held in in where I I operate my business, where I'm from, in central New Jersey, um, over by Colts Neck, um, between Colts Neck and Toms River. And um, Ty fled at at the start of the American Revolution and joined the British Army and then organized. He was not given a full commission. He wasn't allowed to become a British soldier, but basically led a uh, small group of escaped slaves who led raids against the uh, Continental Army for almost two years, uh, completely sabotaged most of the plantation-owning activity that was going on in central New Jersey at the time, and um, wounded some of the most decorated and, and over the last couple of hundred years lionized um, so-called American soldiers. <laughs> and so he, he was something of, of uh, he was genius militarily. He was actually someone who, who tested the resolve of the Continental Army and and really decimated their forces and support for an extended period of time. And so his activities were a true inspiration. It's one of the major reasons you saw thousands of African Americans join the British to leave um, the United States once the war was lost. You had over 10,000 African Americans sail out of New York with the British Army and relocate to Nova Scotia and back to London and even go back to West Africa. And it was, you know, Colonel Tai is probably my favorite story of someone that we don't celebrate enough for his example, literally liberating people in his immediate area, but then also in death becoming a martyr that inspired people to go and find freedom outside of this new nation that had been formed. Are there any books you could recommend to our listeners covering that uh, individual? Oh, the the book that turned me on to Colonel Ty is, um, let's see, "Slavery and Freedom in the Rural North" by Graham Hodges. No, was that slavery by uh, Graham Hodges? Yes, yeah, "Slavery and Freedom in the Rural North" by Graham Hodges, H O D G E S. In addition to that, I'd, I'd also recommend. Uh, Clement Price's book, Freedom Not Far Distant, and uh, Giles Wright's History of of African Americans in New Jersey. Okay. And
3: um, I was fascinated by all the self-help organizations, mutual aid societies, um, the darkest um, societies, and uh, the schools, again, that were formed there. Um, what do you, what can you tell our uh, audience about, um, some of those self-help organizations? Have you been into any study of those?
0: Yeah, early in my graduate career, I, I was fascinated, again, with the, um, organization of the black elite in Philadelphia to start to organize and, and basically find a new way to cry out their own freedom and prove, um, that they were the best of the American citizens, not those who just needed someone's pity or assistance. And so um, the National uh, Negro Congresses of the 1830s, 1840s, and 1850s, um, and especially uh, the work of Martin Delaney, um, the man we don't spend enough time with when we talk about the 19th century and the struggle against slavery. Um, We we get swept up with Truth and Douglas and and, um, Tubman, who are all Legendary figures in their own right, but Martin Delaney stands people. on on equal footing with all with all three of them. Uh, yeah, Martin Delaney um, is probably I'm torn. I, I, I would imagine the people who know about him think of him as the father of black nationalism. He was he was very passionate about the fact that African Americans could stand on their own and given the opportunity to compete head-to-head on fair terms without work anyone else in the world, let alone the Anglo-Saxons, the Germans, the French, whoever, um, wanted to claim that there were um, permanent, divine differences between people of of different races. And so Delaney gave no quarter. Even even to Frederick Douglass, who uh, they had more than a rivalry. They, They differed sharply on the path that African Americans should take going forward as they achieved their freedom. But um, Delaney served in the Union Army during the Civil War, and he had been an absolutely uncompromising advocate for the ability of African Americans to shape not only their destiny, but the destiny of any place they chose to lead. And so um, a lot of times the way we we talk about or imagine Marcus Garvey, um, we can take some of those feelings, some of those kinds of um, inspiration about black dignity, and really apply that to the ideas and the actions and the words of Martin Delaney. Did Delaney uh, author any books? Um, There are a number of good biographies about Delaney. I think he mainly wrote um, essays and articles for various publications, um, both abolitionists and those who tended to be more uh, radical in seeking an independent path for um, African Americans. I'll look around real quick, see if I can find a couple good titles for you. Um,
3: While you're doing that, I want to remind our listeners that we are talking with Dr. Walter Greeson. We're on the Gist of Freedom. My name is Preston Washington, and I'm your host. And uh, if you want to join the conversation or have a question, you can give us a call at 949-270-5957.
0: Uh, okay, West, Univ- West Virginia University has an online bibliography of Martin Delaney's writings, and so that's going to be the most comprehensive place to look on the web. Um, his most famous book is The Condition, Elevation, Emigration, and Destiny of the Colored People of the United States, Politically Considered. He published that in 1852. Okay, Martin Delaney. You mentioned he had a fallen
3: out with uh, Mr. Douglas. Mr. Douglas. Frederick Douglass and uh, Mr. Douglas was having some issues with a number of other abolitionists. Mm-hmm. Uh, any of them that stand out significantly to your mind?
0: Oh, the conflicts of Frederick Douglass.
3: Yeah. Did he have mm-hmm. Did he have issues there with uh, William Garrison?
0: Oh yeah, of course, of course, and you know they they disagreed on you know whether the Constitution itself could be a framework for um, the abolition of slavery. Garrison famously feeling that the document protected slavery and it would never do anything but support the institution. and Douglas was saying that the ideas could be applied in such a way that under the Constitution uh, slavery could end. And so, you know, Douglas eventually wins that argument by winning over Abraham Lincoln. And so, um, you know, at least Politically enough to get the uh, Emancipation Proclamation and then the Thirteenth Amendment, Thank but um, <laughs> now the, the the conflict that stands out most to me is the conflict between Douglas and, and Delaney, just because Delaney um, rejects the idea of um, integration as a positive uh, measure for African Americans going forward. He has uh, enormous uh, race race pride. Um, saying that in fact any attempt at integration, the intermingling of black and white would only um degrade or, or lessen the gifts that African Americans brought to the world. And so he's he's very passionate that, you know, there's no need to see, oh, that the races need to blend together and become more physically similar and have gifts that they share across each other. And so he's he's much more determined to craft a, a distinct Path and civilization through history, um, on on the terms that African Americans choose for themselves, and even if it's, if it's I guess I struggle with calling him the father of black nationalism because I, I still look back at David Walker, who in 1829 imagines a kind of Pan African ideal, um, and so it, it's hard to beat David Walker's vision for what equality for African Americans means, how that means not just Africans in North America or the Caribbean finding a new path forward, but that the African people of the world on the continent and anywhere that they have gone share a common destiny. And um, Delaney shares that feeling. I think he, he's one of the people who is most inspired by, by Walker's appeal. And so together the two of them pose a very different vision from what we've seen from Frederick Douglass through Martin Luther King, emerge as kind of the ideal of the melting pot from an African-American perspective. That is, African-Americans can participate and lead and have the same opportunities as anyone else in this particular area, uh, the United States, North America, what have you, that integration is going to be the path towards greatest freedom for all people around the world. Um, Walker, Delaney, Henry Highland Garnett, These these folks, even Anna Julia Cooper, um, remain less convinced that you know open and universal integration is the is the best best path for people of African descent. Mm -hmm. You mentioned
3: earlier that you were writing a piece on activities, abolitionist activities in Philadelphia, Mm covering 1790 to 1850. Got a couple questions. Where will that appear? How will our listeners come across that? And uh, you mentioned someone by the name of Julia. Can you tell us uh, uh, a little bit more about
0: Julia? Oh, okay. Um, Yeah, the uh, first point, the Encyclopedia of Greater Philadelphia is an online encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. And it's a collection of essays by um, some of the most distinguished historians of the last 40 years. Um, of the city and so they're they're easily accessible they point to some of the best collections of history about the city and so a good colleague of mine named uh, Kenneth Jackson um, I should say two colleagues of mine Kenneth Jackson and Lisa Keller edited an encyclopedia of New York um, a little bit over a decade ago almost 20 years ago now actually and um the Encyclopedia of New York was so extraordinary, just so well done to reveal the kind of rich history of all the peoples of New York, and they give special attention to the African-American contributions of New York in the text, and it's become you know, a bestseller. It's an extraordinary work that brought history to life in the ways that people could walk around the city and really appreciate the work and the sacrifice, the vision that it took to make that city what it was today in the present as we experience it. Well, I love the team that's doing the one on Philadelphia because they put it online. And it's much more dynamic because there are video clips and sound files, um, old maps that are immediately accessible just at the click of a button um, or a click of a mouse um, when you go through the encyclopedia. And so my essay is is specifically on West Philadelphia. Um, It should be available through the online encyclopedia. I would hope... I shouldn't put pressure on my editors this, editor this way, but I hope by the end of April, at the latest, it'll it'll be up on the web. And I tried to make it very interactive. There'll there'll be a built-in game um, that shows how the uh, abolitionist impulse reshaped Philadelphia in the 1840s and 1850s. Um, there are a number of uh, interactive videos that are going to be linked through there. A lot of stuff from the Library of Congress's um, still image collection. Um, You know, my own uh, multimedia history channel on YouTube is is featured in a couple of places. So to have an interactive online encyclopedia, I think, is a great resource, and I'm honored to be in there and included talking about West Philadelphia in particular. Um, When it comes to Anna Julia Cooper, um, again, one of my favorite people (laughs) uh, when it comes to African American history. Uh, Anna Julia Cooper is a first African-American woman to be published um, in terms of a work of nonfiction. You would have had women like Lucy Bija or um, you had poets and novelists um, among African-American women going back into the 1700s. Uh, Phyllis Wheatley is the other famous African-American poet folks may have heard of. But Anna Julia Cooper is, is extraordinary intellectual and published a book called A Voice from the South, Um, in 1892. And uh, she was the uh, teacher and principal at the M Street High School in D.C. Um, And basically tried to frame an analysis for what freedom should look like in the South um, for all people, Uh, not just in terms of racial segregation ending, but for women to have equal opportunity throughout the South. Now, again, you're talking about some 60 years before the feminine mystique appears in the United States, um, she is uh, one of the first African American women to to get her PhD. A um, good colleague of mine in Florida, uh, Stephanie Evans, has this extraordinary video on the role of historically black colleges in giving higher education opportunity to black women and uh, features Anna, Anna Julia Cooper prominently. Um, Cooper was born while slavery was still functioning. She was born in slavery in 1858 in North Carolina. And she uh, lived to uh, 1964, just the, the brink of the March on Washington. Um, so, again, this extraordinary woman, this this genius intellect that, that absolutely set the standard for people like um, Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, Mary Church Terrell, Ida Wells Barnett. Um, all of them looked to Anna Cooper as someone who basically was setting the idea for what they were trying to achieve. Okay, and um, Anna Julia Cooper, thank you for
3: that. Uh, what about the temperance movement um, and its attempt, or Black's attempts, to join in the temperance movement, and that seemed to fail? Uh, it would seem to be due to the prejudice of the whites involved in the temperance movement.
0: Um, what's your take on that? Yeah, again, this because I I think it is very specifically through through my work on Philadelphia recently, is that um, it's very notable both the segregation within the temperance movement and then among African Americans themselves within African American clubs and within churches temperance was much more popular among African Americans as an idea and as a political political motivator than it was among the, the white population in Philadelphia. And so you had this division where the Democratic Party in Philadelphia was um, largely white and didn't want and actively worked to keep blacks from gaining any anything approaching equal citizenship. And so after the Civil War, especially as as free black population in Philadelphia grew, They they joined the Republican Party, and the Republican Party had its platform, temperance. And so African Americans were some of the greatest champions of temperance for the Republican Party anywhere in the United States, and this this spoke to the power of the black church. It spoke to the power of the uh, black women's clubs, the, um, the groups that eventually merged and became the National Association of Colored Women in the 1890s. And at the heart of it was a lot of the sense that being leaders, being educated, being contributors to the advance of the civilization required that people not be involved in their dissolution through alcohol. And so African Americans were very committed to the idea. Um, you have a couple of historians who argue that you know working class or poor African Americans were were constantly involved in alcohol culture and in in the rural south or the rural north were bootleggers and produced moonshine. And that's true to an extent, but in the cities where people were traveling in increasing numbers after 1880, um, they became involved in these women's clubs. They became involved in their churches. They became involved in in eventually even the black fraternity sorority movement where alcohol was, was held in a great deal of skepticism. This was a way to kind of undermine the progress of the race And trying to achieve, you know, its its greatness on its own terms, and so uh, temperance is a a huge piece of the African American cultural identity in the wake of the experience of slavery, and uh, a way to combat the idea of the legitimacy of segregation. That public drunkenness only fueled the ideas of minstrelsy, that that white Americans, that everyone, that people generally were being taught that you know this is why African Americans were to be degraded and held. In servitude, and so yeah, the, the commitment to temperance, and 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 I and I should say in my own work, a lot of the um, work of the YMCA, segregated black YMCA's, from the mid 1890s up into the 1950s, were all about avoiding alcohol, and you know the the sense that faith and strength, intelligence, good education, high culture um achievement all came from discipline and so the temperance movement you know while while it didn't welcome African American women into organizations like the women's christian temperance movement uh that didn't stop African Americans generally from holding that value pretty close to their hearts yeah i would agree that
3: uh blacks were probably much more temperate during the thir- 1830s, 40s, and 50s, probably less temperate after the Civil War and moving up to about 1900 or so. Uh, the Gist of Freedom has a clip um, that uh, where Dr. Martin Luther King was giving some stats on how much blacks spent on spirits versus charity, which was a, a very
0: uh,
3: uh, interesting
0: uh, take on that phenomenon.
3: Uh, in terms
0: of, we well, King talking about the middle of the 20th century.
3: Yes. Whereas I think, again, after the Civil War, up until today, blacks became and are becoming less uh, less temperate than they were in the 1830s. So that that's the
0: thing that, that kind of fits. What's his thesis? There's the uh, thesis that came out that uh, after slavery led to the uh, the patterns of the black family uh, became dissolved and there was less less kind of a, a culture, a degradation that took root under Jim Crow. It's, uh, e. Franklin Frazier put that theory forward in, in the uh, 1940s, early 1950s. And I think, you know, he's, he's been pretty roundly disproven by most sociologists and historians is that you had a very strong kind of black professional elite and in the working class. African Americans, folks who were held kind of in the masses of the unskilled or semi-skilled labor population,
1: they were really
0: very meticulous about keeping families together and, and keeping a sense of strong community um, and avoiding the kinds of alcohol, and certainly there was not the widespread junk culture that we see after World War II. So oh, yeah. in my reading, anyway, is that this, this period from about 1870 to 1930, Great Depression kind of expands some of the drug and the alcohol problems. Uh But the period of where Jim Crow really got put in place, um, you don't have the extensive kind of collapse of the black community into violence and drugs and alcohol that sometimes gets portrayed um, in media that looks back at that time period. I remember I saw a movie by Eddie Murphy and Martin Lawrence called Life. It's a very funny movie. It's a very interesting kind of look back at the world of the 1930s and 40s and at the same time although it's trying to give you a sense of what those what men like their characters might have been like they still read a lot of the issues of how black dysfunction was in the 80s and 90s and try and project that that it had always been that case back in in the great depression in the world war ii era and they they it a little bit and so that's it's you know it's entertainment in hollywood you can't take it but so seriously for any historical content as we've seen with the Django debate. But, um, you know, I, I always try and get back and say, you know, it wasn't ideal. It wasn't that everything was perfect back in before the great migration, but it certainly was just a very different kind of world, a different kind of sense of what black community and black neighborhoods were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I would agree that, that, uh,
3: Jim Crow played a major role, um, uh, Start putting a lot of liquor stores in the uh, urban areas, and some yeah, folks yeah. would argue today in the urban areas you got more liquor stores and you got churches or grocery stores and grocery stores, yeah. And now um, yeah, the outlet of uh, spirits is oh man, it's just mm-hmm. overwhelming. Fast food everywhere. Um, what's your take? You mentioned uh, Django. Uh, have you been involved yeah. in that conversation? What's your
0: take on? I've actually held back from a lot of that. I I was initially very excited to go in and see the movie. I had some trepidation. I had some some deep fear about the portrayal of sexual violence in that movie. Um, As people went and saw it, my fears were allayed, but I have still not gotten into the theater to see it. So I've held back on the comment. I've seen enough of the clips and read enough of the commentary to get a sense that it's, it's a Tarantino movie, so it's primarily about the violence. It seems, I guess, from the reviews, much more like a cowboy movie than a movie about slavery, which is interesting. And so um, I guess the one question I've had, based on the things I've read and the clips that I've seen, is um, how the movie might have been different. If Instead of putting it in the mid-19th century in Mississippi, if they had taken it about 50 years earlier, taken it back to about 1800, and then said, oh, we're going to put this in Rhode Island, That would have been, I think, a very jarring experience for a lot of people, and and I I would have liked to have seen something like that because it would have been a very similar kind of story, um, but just the setting of it wouldn't have made it reinforce the stereotypes that slavery is all about the South. Yeah. So what year did
3: it take? I mean, imagine it was during
0: slavery, uh, before... Yeah, yeah. From what I've read, folks are saying it's it's a kind of 1840s, 1850s story because of the ability of the bounty hunter to kind of come into the scene and um, move um, Django from being held as property in chattel and begin to, uh, what do you call it, seek out these, uh, these uh, criminals that tore apart his family. And so... My sense is it's you know middle of the 19th century, I'm looking around to see if they put a specific date on it. I imagine there. 1858 is where they locate the story. Okay. Um,
3: what do you think about the um, um something about the black schools in Canterbury, uh, Connecticut competing with Yale? Is that a black school? Oh, was that that was back in the day, I think.
0: Uh, yeah, I'm not familiar with the story in Canterbury.
3: Um, okay. Uh, that's from the book, actually. Uh, oh, okay. Benjamin's book that I'm speaking of. Okay. Uh, I need to go back and, and I check that again. Passed, uh, one of those communities passed a, a law that you couldn't educate blacks if they weren't born in that state. Yeah. And, uh, So do you have any thoughts on that,
0: or are you familiar with that at all? No, that's probably the biggest thing I did that motivated me to put out my current book, was um, I saw so many of my colleagues talk about uh, segregation being a product of the Jim Crow South. And what I saw over time, and and reading a lot of books about the North before 1840, was that segregation was a product of gradual emancipation, that in the 1770s, 1780s, Um, Northern states um, that didn't have cash crops began to turn away from slavery because it just wasn't effective in terms of growing their state economies. But as they moved towards gradual emancipation, um, it normally took 20 to 30 years for someone held in in slavery to uh, gain their freedom. Um, Once people began to gain their freedom, northern states and then uh, even frontier states like uh, Indiana and Ohio took uh, dramatic steps to impose fines to uh, require registration cards, to deny education uh, to deny kinds of employment rights or business ownership, passed hundreds of laws, making sure that African Americans could not have um, equal rights, even though by law they were free within those states, and so that 's actually the to me the original jim crow i mean the, the story the the name Jim Crow comes out of these um Daddy Rice performances, where he traveled around the North um, before he went into the South and became wildly popular, and so Jim Crow is is really a Northern creation. You see, the Southern states after the Civil War studying Northern communities to learn. Okay, now that we have to deal with free blacks, how did the North control them when they abolished slavery? And so, you know, that whole process of where segregation comes from, we're we're, di- we're mistaken in some fundamental ways. You're just trying to look look to the South and say, Well that's that's where the problem was and that's why things unfolded the way they did. The North is is the original innovator of how to kind of keep some form of slavery alive, um, even after you've technically abolished it.
3: Oh yeah, Douglas uh Blackman's book, um, uh, Slavery by Another Name. Yes. Uh, really emphasized that. Um there's also a movie uh, under that same title uh yeah, by another name. Two years ago? Well, no, I hear recently it's gonna be a screening uh mm-hmm. the yeah, gifts okay. of freedom in con- uh, conjunction with Malcolm and Doctor Betty Sabah's Educational Center. They're gonna mm-hmm. have New York City. They're gonna have a screening February sixteenth at 7:00 uh, seven PM and Malcolm's uh daughter, Alicia, Elisa, she's gonna be the mm-hmm. host. Oh that's and extraordinary. For, uh, yeah, it's going to be a movie, and it's entitled, uh, Slavered by Another Name. Yeah, I, thought, il- I remember that film coming out a while ago. Yeah. Let me get the pronunciation of that name right. il Yasa. uh, Malcolm's Daughter, will be the host.
0: It's so going I- to be a great event.
3: Yeah, it will be, um.
0: Too i Oh, the yeah, it only came out last year. They aired that last year was the first time it came out on, on PBS. Okay, yeah. yeah. And,
3: uh, what, you, uh, again, you're in New Jersey, right?
0: I am, I am. Um, my business is now in. I do a lot of work around Princeton, and I'm frequently at Princeton University. But I travel everywhere from out by Boston all the way down to D.C., you know, a couple, a couple times a month. Okay. Would you like to be
3: a part of the screening?
0: Oh, yeah. What did you say the date was?
3: On the panel? Uh, February 17th. February
0: 16th. Oh, that's perfect. That fits right in for me. I, I have a couple events early in the month where I have to travel and then one event late in the month. But, yeah, you, you're right there in my spot where I have some time. Okay. That's going to be a Saturday, the 16th, at 7
3: p.m. Um and uh, it looks like you're in. Uh, you should be hearing any details from our producer, Leslie Guest. Okay. Uh, I can give you yeah, some. I get those details. I'll spread the word around. Hopefully I'll bring, bring some more folks to the show as well. Okay. And if people want to get in touch
0: with you, how would they do that? Uh, the two best ways to get in touch with me, um, first is for my business. If you're trying to get programs off the ground and you're looking for funding to kind of start new businesses or revitalize your community, the website for the uh, center is the Center for Metropolitan Growth. Uh, is IC Metro Growth. The letters IC and then Metro Growth. It all is one word, icmetrogrowth.com. And so that's one spot if you're trying to do economic development locally. If you're looking for any of my educational materials, the YouTube channel with all the videos or the archives of all the people's research that I've kind of compiled over the last two decades, Uh, That's at just my name, WalterGrayson.com, and so either of those places, you send me a note through there, and I'll be back in touch with you within a day. Okay, and getting back to that uh, slavery by another name,
3: um, what do you think of the convict leasing and the prison
0: industrial complex today? Yeah, there's a whole chapter in my new book that's dedicated to that. The book is called Suburban Erasure. And um, the reason why I talk about it is we talk a lot about the prison industrial complex as as the way that it kind of crippled civil rights activism after 1970 and uh, led to this massive prison industrial complex where African-American young people are held to kind of work for $3 a day across the country for maximizing investment profits for companies like the Corrections Corporation of America. And Angela Davis, um, Michelle Alexander have done extraordinary work Exposing this and keeping it in the public eye, Uh, for me, the aspect that doesn't get covered enough is that so many of the small towns and rural communities here in New Jersey have been huge contributors to breaking down the walls of Jim Crow here in the Garden State, and after 1960, the emergence of mass incarceration or criminalizing civil rights activism more specifically Mm -hmm led to the fact that there's thousands of young people from small towns, not from Newark, not from Trenton, not from Atlantic City or Camden, that filled up the juvenile halls and filled up the state state prisons. And so I believe it was by 1990, there were reports that saying the majority of black and Latino inmates in New Jersey came from places like Montclair, or Freehold, or Asbury Park, these little kind of far-flung concentrations in the suburbs of black and Latino population, Cherry Hill, these were the places that young people were being warehoused. And that fit with my personal experience growing up where, you know, out of the 10 friends I grew up with, I was the only one, I was one of only three to make it to college out of the 10 of us who hung out together. And then I was the only one out of the ten to graduate. And out of the seven who didn't go to college, uh, four of them spent lengthy terms in jail. And so it was just astonishing to me that, you know, there were more people out of just my immediate friendship group that went to jail than went to college. And then, and this is all in the period from like 85 to 2005. And that wasn't unusual. Like that was... Almost by design. So the prison industrial complex, you know, this this whole era of mass incarceration, it's not just about urban communities. It's about a lot of the small towns where we don't think about but people of color are especially vulnerable. And so I'm trying a lot of my work is trying to get folks to look beyond just the big urban center for for how we deal with, you know, generally issues of inequality. Did you see the movie Lincoln? Uh no. I have two small children, so I I don't get out to the movies as much as I like. I got a ten year old and a one year old. So mostly when I get to see a movie it's got it's animated. <laughs> it's got a bunch of like uh what well, I say? I saw all the Ice Age movies. <laughs> got lots of issues there, but like I don't know if there's interesting for your audience. Okay.
3: And um what's your take on the thirteenth amendment, which actually allowed um uh involuntary servitude or involuntary servitude being ruled out except in the event of criminal conviction which kind of opened the door for slavery by another name and do you have any thoughts on the connection between um, gun violence the NRA KKK and the violence that we saw up
0: there in Connecticut and other urban areas yeah, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot there, you know, we they did a, did a yeah. talk about that a couple of weeks ago. But, yeah, I was I had heard Angela Davis speak at the uh, University of Pennsylvania back in uh, the, the mid-90s, probably like 95 or 96. She did one of her early talks on um, the prison industrial complex and, and the 13th Amendment. And I had always known that there was that loophole there because of the uh, vagrancy laws that were passed in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. So all of a sudden there was a criminal just to be standing around in any part of the South, and you could be re-enslaved. And so, and I knew that persisted, and it was a huge feature of the sharecropping system. I mean, when I talked about that Eddie Murphy Martin Lawrence movie, that's that's largely the premise of that is that they were legally re-enslaved um, in the course of that film, and that was that happened to thousands, thousands of people over another three or four generations following the civil war. And so that that's true and then that's the thing I I'm probably going to do a couple talks on on my speaking tour this coming year on the the illusion of integration is oh, that we, yeah. we believed we believed that the uh civil rights advances of the 40s and 50s and 60s um made it so that integration was an accepted civic value in American society. And in fact, the kind of integration that we got that was adopted by the Congress and signed by the presidents and, and put into law by state legislatures across the country was an integration that was based on maintaining the inferiority of black neighborhoods and black families and um, black businesses. Um, the best example comes from, or the, the most cited example anyway, comes from Robert Williams' book, Desegregating the Dollar, where he talks about the process of how the, the Major League Baseball brought Jackie Robinson in and, and the great hoopla that we celebrate every year they play baseball. The early in the season they have a Jackie Robinson Day to say, oh, this was integration and this made us an open society. It's an absolutely... Disgusting, travesty, the way they integrated baseball. Because in letting Jackie Robinson in and bringing in all the, the best talent from the Negro Leagues, they didn't hire one black usher for any of these Major major League stadiums. They didn't hire one black vendor from the Negro Leagues to come and sell to the, to the integrated crowds that filled up Dodger Stadium. They didn't bring one black owner from the Negro League gone to be part owner of any of the Major League teams. Yes, sir. The integration that we got integration that we got was all about can we have one person who's exceptional get in and show that they belong? It wasn't about structurally really bringing the entire black community into the American body politic, and that's that's this monstrous failure that just made the prison industrial complex possible as an extension of the convict lease system, the uh vagrancy laws. That emerged after the Civil War, which of course were the continuation of slavery and so it's It's sure. taken us forty years just to make that plain to some small segment of the american public but i i I work every day trying to make people build a really integrated America where African Americans have every opportunity to own, to supervise, and to be fully citizens, not just in the United States but around the world.
3: Now, this will be a good conversation come April for spring training
0: uh, for baseball when baseball opens up in the spring. You're right. I think I'm going to put an essay out right then because that's a crucial time where they they have this romantic notion and they don't really deal with the reality. Yeah, and hopefully Leslie can uh,
3: arrange to uh, air a program on that subject
0: on the gifts of freedom. I'd like to remind no, our listeners. work. I'd love everything you guys I've seen from you guys online please, please keep up all this work and i'll I'll spread the word and everywhere mm-hmm. I can mm-hmm.
3: yes, and um, would love to talk to you about satchel Page and the Kansas City monarchs and um thats even in my memory growing up here
0: in Kansas
1: City Nice. I've oh, uh,
0: seen the, the monarchs story, play. Oh, man. That's wonderful. Yeah, uh, I'd love to talk with you. I'm sorry? Yes, that's wonderful. I'd love to talk with you more.
3: Yeah. And uh, and I want to remind our listeners that they've been listening to the Guest of Freedom. Our guest has been Walter Greason. My name is uh, Preston Washington. I've been your host. I'm located here in Kansas City. Our producer is... Leslie Gist, author and historian. Uh, please be sure to join us next Thursday for another edition of uh, The Black Abolitionist by Benjamin Quarles. Uh, you have any final comments there, Dr. Grayson?
0: I would say just this. For the folks who listen to this show, you have you carry with you every day the capacity to earn, you're going to earn at least $5 million in your life. Take a little bit of time to reflect over the earnings that you get to think about how you're going to rebuild that and pass on to your children and your grandchildren that much wealth and more. If you have any questions or concerns, ways that you can think about imagining doing that, I would love to get in touch with you and help support you so that you are not just the abolitionists today, but your children and grandchildren will be abolitionists tomorrow. Okay,
3: thank you very much. And uh, hopefully we'll have our listeners tune in next Thursday. Thank you again, Dr. Greeson. Again, my name is Preston Washington, and I'd like to say good night. Good night, Doctor. Good night.
1: Black Abolitionists by Benjamin Quarles continued...
2: through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to
1: 347-324-5552. No one who sold ardent spirits could be a member of the society which urged the young men of the land to abstain from every fluid that had a tendency in the least degree to intoxicate. A convention of Negroes of Maine and New Hampshire held at Portland in 1849 condemned the liquor traffic. Of all the Negroes in the United States, those in Connecticut were unrivaled in their support of the war against strong drink. The Temperance Society of the People of Color of New Haven, founded in 1829, was a pioneer among Negroes. The addresses given at its meetings were sent to the abolitionist weeklies, In 1833, the Negroes of Middletown organized the Home Temperance Society, with Jehiel C. Beeman as president and his son, Amos, as secretary. A year later, Hartford had two Negro temperance societies, one of them for juveniles. To the senior, Beeman went the credit for organizing the Connecticut State Temperance Society of Colored People, which took place at Middletown in May 1836. A year later, at its meeting held in Norwich, the society reported a membership of 350. J.C. Beeman, the president, became in 1838 the general agent also, periodically visiting the major cities. Connecticut alone in New England had an effective statewide temperance organization among Negroes. But local societies sprang up in such cities as Providence, Pittsfield, and New Bedford. Boston, like the much smaller Lennox, had both a men's and a women's society, the latter with Jane Putnam as president and Susan Paul as secretary. Membership in Boston spurted in April 1833 when 114 admirers of William Lloyd Garrison took the Cold Water Pledge as a farewell tribute to him just prior to his sailing for England. Of the middle Atlantic states, New York and Pennsylvania led in temperance activity among Negroes. In New York State, as elsewhere, black abolitionists furnished the leadership in the movement. The New York City Temperance Society, founded in 1829, was assured by Samuel E. Cornish that a glass of water and a biscuit would answer the purpose of politeness. In the fall of 1831, the Society's agents held meetings with church congregations, signing up 39 pledges at the First Colored Presbyterian Church, 40 at the Abyssinian Baptist Church, and 119 at the Zion Methodist Church. In 1834, the four officers were familiar figures in anti-slavery work, Theodore S. Wright, Philip A. Bell, Charles B. Ray, and David Ruggles. Negro temperance work in upstate New York followed a similar pattern of leadership. Schenectady Negroes formed a temperance society in May 1836, following an address by the white reformer Garrett Smith. At Buffalo in the spring of 1842, William Wells Brown organized the Union Total Abstinence Society with 215 members and remained its president for three years. Another Negro abolitionist, Stephen Myers, acted in 1842 and 1843 as agent for the Temperance Weekly, the Northern Star and Freeman's Advocate. One of the places at which he spoke, Lee, Massachusetts, named its temperance society after him. The meeting had been held in the town hall of Lee, with many whites present, and with 20 persons signing the pledge. In one town, if not in others, Myers served two masters, lecturing one night on temperance and another night on anti-slavery. Pennsylvania Negroes had two temperance societies by 1834, one in pittsburgh and the other in philadelphia the latter increasing its number of societies to four in 1837. in this state the women were particularly active in the movement pittsburgh's temperance society being made up of both sexes the daughters of temperance had 14 unions in the state numbering a total membership of 1500. in november 1848 two of the five philadelphia unions held a joint meeting at the Wesley methodist church at which 200 women were dressed in full regalia along with a bevy of cold water girls in white the two speakers were abolitionists jc beeman and henry highland garnet the latter after whom one of the unions had been named was introduced as apostle of liberty and temperance taking an hour and a half Garnet portrayed the terrible effects of alcohol, and labored to allure the drunkard to the path of soberness and peace. In proportion to their numbers, the Negroes in Cincinnati were unique in their temperance zeal. In 1840, over one quarter of the city's colored population belonged to either the adult society of 450 members, or the youth branch numbering 180. Negro opposition made it impossible for a Negro to sell intoxicating drinks openly. Here again, much of the Negro temperance sentiment was abolitionist-inspired. In the mid-thirties, Cincinnati's Negroes had been deeply influenced by Theodore D. Weld and other Lane seminary students with abolitionist leanings who had done welfare work in colored neighborhoods. In other Ohio communities, the tie between abolition and Negro temperance was even more evident. On an April Sunday in 1849, the Negroes of Salem held a mass temperance rally in the morning, followed by an anti slavery meeting in the afternoon, shifting from one to the other with no change of personnel or mood. Three months later, the Negroes at Hanover held a mass meeting for the twofold purpose of advocating temperance and slave emancipation. At a statewide convention held at Columbus in January 1853, which went on record as favoring a prohibition law like that of Maine, the featured speaker was abolitionist John Mercer Langston. The temperance movement among Negroes was a compound of failure and success. Its effectiveness was diminished by a lack of follow-up and by the prevalence of Jim Crow practices within the organized movement. Like the colored convention effort, The temperance crusade among Negroes was stronger on planning than on performance. Following the periodic meetings, whether annually, quarterly, or monthly, a hibernation stage set in, with very little activity until the next coming together. There were no agents outside of J.C. Beeman and Stephen Wires. The state societies in Massachusetts, New York, and New Jersey were little more than rosters of officers. Although on one occasion, at Hudson in August 1845, the Delavan State Temperance Union of New York drew an audience of nearly 3,000. A regional organization with headquarters in Boston, the New England Temperance Society of People of Color, founded in 1835, ran its course in three years. A later effort at regional organization, the state's Delavan Union Temperance Society of Colored People, founded in 1845, proved to be of shorter duration and lesser importance. Temperance work among Negroes was hampered by the attitude of many white prohibitionists who frowned upon Negro membership in their organizations. Negroes would have attended a state temperance convention at Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, in March 1835, had they not assumed that their presence would be considered objectionable, wrote William Whipper in a letter to its president. Reform organizations that were national in their reach always faced the problem of Southern reaction to Negro membership. More often than not, this problem was settled to the satisfaction of the South. There were a few instances of a cooperative relationship with Negroes. The Sons of Temperance, which had become nationwide in 1844, established a Negro local in New York in 1846 and one in Cincinnati in 1848. It was in the latter year that the Sons reached their high point relative to Negroes, appointing Charles H. Langston as Deputy Most Worthy Patriarch for the West, with full powers to establish divisions and grant charters west of the Alleghenies. The Cadets of Temperance, a national organization, sporadically granted charters to groups of colored boys. For some five years, from 1848 to 1853, Frederick Douglass was active in temperance work in upstate New York. In March 1848, he was guest lecturer at the Rochester Temperance Society, with a generous sprinkling of Negroes in the audience. Along with William Allen, he attended the organization meeting of the Women's State Temperance Convention in 1852 at Rochester. A year later, he was present at the first meeting of the Women's State Temperance Society, seconding a resolution that commended the legislature for limiting the number of liquor licenses. After 1853, Douglas grew cool to the organized temperance movement, in part because the women's rightists with whom he had worked lost control of the statewide organization. But by 1853, as Douglas was only too well aware the pattern of segregation had been firmly established in the organized temperance movement. The Sons of Temperance no longer granted charters to Negroes or admitted them to membership. When the branch at Cortland, New York, admitted Samuel Ringgold Ward, it was ordered to expel him or have its charter annulled. The officers of the Cortland Division, members of Ward's all-white congregation, stood by him, and voted their charter back to the New York Division. The action of the National Division in barring Negroes did not sit well with some of the subordinate branches. Rhode Island's division protested the order, and the Massachusetts Division threatened to defy it, maintaining that the subordinate divisions had the right to admit members without regard to color. In 1850, the Grant Division of New England went on record as condemning the National Division's No Negroes policy. In Ohio, the Ashland County Division voted to disband in protest against the color bar, and the members of the Pollard Division declared that such a restrictive policy was tantamount to saying to the colored man, Our doors are closed against you. Some whites withdrew from the Sons of Temperance, but the latter, with one eye fixed on the South, was hardly in a position to refocus its sights. If Negro temperance advocates were ignored by white fellow prohibitionists, they ran the risk of causing an overreaction in whites who were wet, particularly the rum seller and grog shop owner. At Philadelphia on August 1, 1842, the Mensing Temperance Society attempted to hold a festival and procession, some 1,200 marchers assembling with banners. Before the parade could get under way, a mob collected, spurred on by the enemies of temperance. Dispersing the paraders and tearing their flags, the rioters then put the torch to the Smith Beneficial Hall and the Second Colored Presbyterian Church. The firemen threw no water on the burning building, lest, they said, it bring the fury of the horde upon them. The sheriff and his men put in an appearance, but soon they were retreating before the mob, finally breaking into a full run. It was a bad night for the Negroes, some of them fleeing to New Jersey and others taking asylum in the police station. To crown it all, the brick building that had been used by Negroes as a temperance hall was ordered torn down by the legal authorities, who claimed that it might incite the rioters to renewed activity. Despite its setbacks, the temperance crusade among Negroes was certainly as productive as it was among Americans on the whole. In an address to New York Negroes in S. S. Jocelyn deplored the plethora of porter houses in the city, many of them kept by Negroes and still more patronized by them. Yet, he added, intemperance among Negroes was not high proportionally. Joshua Levitt held a similar view about the Negroes in Washington. Temperance had done a good deal for them after seven years, he wrote in 1841, much more than among the whites in the same grade of employment. At upper-class social affairs among Negroes in Philadelphia, the standard drink was lemonade, or some pleasant and wholesome syrup commingled with water. Of the 2,200 Negro seamen who sailed out of New York during 1846, 400 stayed at temperance boarding houses run by the American Seamen's Friends Society. Individual Negroes, invariably of abolitionist bent, lent their influence to the temperance crusade. The effect of such a zealous temperance advocate as Daniel A. Payne would be hard to measure churches and churchgoers in towns and boroughs within his ecclesiastical jurisdiction were constantly urged to form temperance societies. Unlike most others in the business, David Ruggles refused to handle spirituous liquors in the grocery store he ran in New York in the early 1830s. Robert Forton, who allegedly never drank a glass of liquor in his life, insisted that the twenty-five workers in his shipyard be non-drinkers. Unlike many employers who would settle for on-the-job abstinence, Fortin called for nothing less than teetotalism from his workers. In a long letter describing the free Negroes in Washington, D.C. in 1842, Charles T. Torrey attributed their progress to the influence of the abolition movement. A dedicated abolitionist who would later give his life for the slave, Torrey may have been seeing what he wanted to see. But whether Negro self-help, in Washington or elsewhere, was rooted in abolitionism, the two impulses inevitably converged. Negro self-help strengthened the argument of the abolitionists while simultaneously furnishing the movement with more effective workers. Mutual aid societies were designed to protect their members from indigency, helping them in sickness or distress. A Negro family, no matter how poor, was determined that no town hearse would ever drive to its door. The Sons of the African Society, formed in Boston in 1798, gave as their purpose the mutual benefit of each other, behaving at the same time as true and faithful citizens of the commonwealth in which we live. It pledged its members to attend the sick, to bury a member decently if he had not left enough money for his funeral, to help the widow and children, and to watch over one another in spiritual concerns. Ten years later, the New York African Society for Mutual Relief was incorporated with young Henry Sipkins as secretary. To the regular functions of such a society, it added an annual parade. The advent of the new abolitionists coincided with, and doubtless stimulated, an increase in Negro self-help organizations. In 1827, at Chillicothe, with Lewis Woodson presiding, an African Educational and Benevolent Society was formed. A year later, Providence Negroes took a similar step, and in 1831, at New Haven, the Peace and Benevolent Society of African Americans came into existence. But it was Philadelphia that outstripped all other cities nearly one-half of its adult Negro population holding membership in mutual aid societies in the 1840s. In 1838, the city could count 80 such organizations with an average membership of 93. Ten years later, the roster of mutual benefit societies had risen to 106, comparing most favorably with the total of 119 such groups in the entire state of New York in 1844. In Philadelphia, as elsewhere, the participating members paid dues ranging from 3 to $5 a year, collected weekly or monthly. Persons of affluence often belonged to two or more societies at the same time. Like other cities, Philadelphia had its Dorcas Society, a women's organization to help the poor and bearing the name of a biblical character of good deeds. The Philadelphia group distributed groceries, clothing, and small sums of money. Some groups, like the African Dorcas Society of New York, concentrated on clothing for poor children, particularly those going to school. In 1828, the society provided 232 garments, including hats and shoes, for 123 boys and girls. The Harrisburg Dorcas Society stipulated that none of its food, clothing, or fuel was to go to drunkards, kidnappers, betrayers, and base idle persons. The Dorcas Society of Buffalo, holding that it is sometimes more blessed to receive than to give, occasionally gathered to listen to an address by an invited guest. Self-help among Negroes was closely related to self-improvement, the acquisition of useful knowledge, and the cultivation of the intellect. A young men's organization in Brooklyn bore the name Esmeralda Benevolent and Literary Club, indicating its dual purpose to combine material assistance and mental outreach. To many Negroes, life was something more than a pigfoot and a bottle of beer. The self improvement impulse among Negroes stemmed in part from the general upward and onward spirit so characteristic of American society. But self-improvement among Negroes also had anti-slavery antecedents, for its advocates viewed it as a means of refuting the charge of racial inferiority, while at the same time gladdening the hearts of the reformers. An evidence of this close bond between abolitionism and Negro self-improvement was furnished by the American Moral Reform Society, which, at its first meeting, pledged itself to make one common cause with the American Anti-Slavery Society. The close affinity between abolitionism and Negro improvement was illustrated by an interracial group in Boone County, Indiana, which organized a society for the moral and literary advancement of the Negro, and then proceeded to organize an anti-slavery society, thus becoming two societies with an identical membership. The leadership of Negro self-improvement organizations was invariably of abolitionist hue. The first slate of officers of the Phoenix Society of New York, founded in 1833, included Christopher Rush, Thomas L. Jennings, Theodore S. Wright, Peter Vogelsang, and White Arthur Tappan. The board of directors bore names familiar in reform circles, Samuel Hardenberg, Peter Williams, Henry Sipkins, and Boston Crummel, father of Alexander Crummel. The abolitionist Nathaniel Paul was the first president of the Union Society of Albany for the improvement of the colored people in morals, education, and mechanic arts. And Daniel A. Payne held a similar first presidency of the Troy Mental and Moral Improvement Association. Hosea Easton was the presiding officer of the Hartford Literary and Religious Institution upon its founding in 1834. Most of the self-improvement societies sponsored a series of public lectures, from five to twenty-one a season. Open to the public, these lectures were generally free of charge, as in the case of the Philadelphia Library Company, but sometimes not, as in the case of the Adelphic Union Association of Boston, which charged a modest fifty cents for a single ticket for the entire series, and seventy-five cents for a combination ticket admitting a man and a woman. For its series of weekly lectures, the Philomathian Society of New York charged $2.50 for a season ticket and 12.5 cents for a single lecture. The guest lecturers at Negro self-improvement societies generally included a good sampling of abolitionists. Edmund Quincy opened the season series for the Adelphic Union in 1838, subsequently mailing a copy to the officers at their request to have it published. During the eighteen forty season, the Union's roster of speakers included abolitionist Theodore Parker, Samuel J. May, Henry I. Bowditch, John Pierpont, William Lloyd Garrison, James Freeman Clark, and for a return appearance, Edmund Quincy. The Adelphic Union opened its eighteen forty six series with the abolitionist politicians John P. Hale and Charles Sumner. The lecture topics, particularly those in the New York forums were not confined to political and social issues, but included chemistry, geography, logic, and organs of sense. Such broad topical coverage was especially valuable in those cities in which Negroes were barred from attending lectures other than those sponsored by themselves. Most of the self-improvement societies provided opportunities for active participation by the members a lecture would often be followed by a general discussion. Some societies, particularly those made up of young men, inclined toward oratory and declamation, with some of the speakers delivering original pieces. Others made use of the English essayists and poets, on one occasion Ransom F. Wake reading Dryden's Alexander's Feast. Some societies staged debates. At its meeting in December 1842, The Philomathian Society of Albany, with abolitionist William H. Topp presiding, listened to the pros and cons of the question, is the human mind limited? Some of the societies had libraries of their own. Upon organizing in January 1833, the Philadelphia Library Company of Colored Persons issued a public notice appealing for books or for money to buy them. The letter of solicitation carried the names of abolitionists Robert Purvis, Frederick A. Hinton, and Junius C. Morell. By 1840, the library had 600 volumes, acquired in part by the monthly dues of 25 cents a member. The San Francisco Athenaeum and Literary Association, whose members were required to be moral and intelligent, had a library of 800 volumes in 1854. The 16 colored library societies in New York State in 1844 had libraries whose holdings ranged from 100 to 1,400 volumes. The Adelphic Union of Boston, a bit better off than the others, sent its duplicate books to newly organized libraries. Many of the libraries stocked newspapers and periodicals, particularly those of abolitionist hue. Some libraries were able to announce a set schedule of opening and closing hours. The Phoenix Society of New York, for example, operating from 4 o'clock in the afternoon to 9 at night on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Circulating libraries asked that the borrowed books be returned in a week's time. To use a Negro reading room required no fee. The New York Vigilance Committee assessed its members $2.75 a year for the upkeep of its reading room, but strangers were admitted free of charge. These libraries were open to the public, and this meant that whites were welcome, a policy which bore an implied criticism of libraries that excluded Negroes, which most of them did. There was only one society made up of both sexes, the Gilbert Lyceum of Philadelphia, founded in 1841 with Jacob C. White as president and Grace Douglas as treasurer. The all-male Negro self-improvement groups, however, did not exclude women from their reading rooms or from attending meetings open to non-members. But such partial acceptance was hardly satisfactory to all concerned, and as a consequence a half-dozen women's societies were started. Leading the way in 1831 was the Female Literary Association of Philadelphia, to be joined the following year by the African-American Female Intelligence Society of Boston. But the Philadelphia women were not to be outstripped, forming two additional societies in the 1830s, the Minerva Literary Society and the Edgeworth Society. And the last of the antebellum women's societies as the first was founded in Philadelphia, the Sarah M. Douglas Literary Circle, which held its first meeting on September 22, 1859. These literary societies sent reports of their proceedings, along with examples of their creative writings, to the abolitionist press. Juvenile self-improvement societies among Negroes were few in number, doubtless because they were in competition with the schools, public and private. The strongest of these fewer than a half-dozen groups was the Garrison Literary and Benevolent Society of New York, founded in 1834 and made up of males from four to twenty years of age. The Society held its weekly Wednesday afternoon meeting in the classroom of a public school until the school trustees decreed that an organization that bore the controversial name of Garrison could not be permitted to use its facilities led by master henry highland garnet and shouting garrison 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 forever the boys voted against changing the name of their society fortunately for them the philomathian society through philip a bell offered the use of its hall without charge negro self-improvement organizations strengthened the abolitionist effort although admittedly to an extent not open to scientific measurement Many of the self-improvement societies were influenced by the anti-slavery struggle, writes a present-day authority, and were in the main anti-slavery societies until around 1857 when they took on a more definite literary aspect. There were at least fifty such organizations. Some were short-lived, like the Sacramento Young Men's Musical and Literary Society, reflecting the incurable optimism of Americans, black and white some were small. J. McCune Smith described the New York Literary Union as not being large, but as having at least a president and a secretary who were not the same person. By contrast, the Philadelphia Library Company had a roll call of 150. In some cases, the membership count may have been larger if there had been no admission fee, generally of one dollar. But a number count was not the full measure of the impact of these societies. They raised the aspirations of their own members. They lent support to the abolitionist cause, and to non-joiners, white or black, friend or disparager, they furnished an evidence of black enterprise in a somewhat unexpected quarter. Negro self-help was expressed in the movement for more and better schools. This effort, too, bore an abolitionist stamp inasmuch as school training would demonstrate that the Negro was capable of improvement, and hence not doomed by innate inferiority to be a slave perpetually. In 1827, there was a total of ten Negro schools, primary and grammar, in five cities, Portland, Boston, New Haven, New York, and Philadelphia. In the early 1830s, with the simultaneous emergence of the colored convention movement and the new type abolitionists, the Negro school effort received much more attention. In the summer of 1831, Garrison, S.S. S. Jocelyn, and Arthur Tappan conceived of forming a Negro manual labor college at New Haven, Connecticut. Manual labor schools combined a curriculum of classical studies with useful physical labor in the shop or on the farm. Traveling to Philadelphia, the three abolitionists broached the idea to the delegates at the colored convention, mentioning New Haven as the proposed site. The delegates, laboring under the impression that the New Havenites were friendly, pious, generous, and humane, voted their approach enthusiastically, adding, however, that the trustee board of the proposed college should have a Negro majority. As a follow-up, the convention appointed a so-called Committee for Superintending the Application for Funds for the College for Colored Youth, composed of Philip A. Bell, Boston Cromwell, Peter Vogelsang, Peter Williams, and restaurateur Thomas Downing, already famed for his Oyster House. The proposed college got no further. The mayor of New Haven, Dennis Kimberly, strongly opposed it and his stand was supported by a town meeting which voted to resist the establishment of the proposed college in this place by every lawful means. The school was denounced as a threat to the prosperity of Yale and the other educational institutions in the city. The belief was widespread that the proposed Negro school would be an abolitionist auxiliary or front. One of the reasons given for the hostility to the proposed school was its designation as a college which bore the implications of high achievement by Negroes and their resultant pressing for social equality. But this explanation could hardly hold true for the school which Prudence Crandall proposed to establish for young ladies and little misses of color two years later in nearby Canterbury. Miss Crandall had announced this step after she had lost practically all of the students from her boarding school following the admission of a Negro, 17-year-old Sarah Harris. Canterbury, like New Haven, called a town meeting, at which its leading citizen, Andrew T. Judson, strongly denounced Miss Crandall and her school. The meeting was adjourned before abolitionists Samuel J. May and Arnold Buffin could get the floor for a rebuttal. Judson and his numerous supporters urged the state legislature, then in session, to enact a law prohibiting any school from instructing Negroes who were not inhabitants of the state. Miss Crandall held out for 16 months after the passage of the law, but in September 1834, she closed the school and quit the state. A similar fate was in store for abolitionist-sponsored Noise Academy in Canaan, New Hampshire, which in 1834 announced itself as open to youth of good character without distinction as to color. Twenty-eight whites and 14 Negroes studied together for a year while the townspeople grew increasingly restive. A public meeting was convoked in the summer of 1835 which decreed that the academy should be physically transplanted. On August 10th some 300 men with 90 to 100 oxen dragged the building away, leaving it in ruins. These setbacks were dismaying to the abolitionists, but they could take comfort when they looked elsewhere. However abortive at New Haven, Canterbury, and Canaan, education for Negroes spurred by their zeal had been given a fresh impetus. The spirit of self-help took on another form, with Negroes themselves assuming the task of providing additional schools. Again, the Negroes who led the way were abolitionist activists. In January 1832, a group of Pittsburgh Negroes established the African Education Society with John B. Vachon as president and Lewis Woodson as secretary. The school, its personnel all Negro, was attended by many of the respectable colored people of the city. During the same year, John Malvin organized the School Education Society in Cleveland, the costs to be borne by subscriptions and appeals. In 1836, Providence Negroes founded the New England Union Academy with tuition of $3 a quarter. New York Negroes established the Phoenix High School in 1836, with Theodore S. Wright as president, Dr. John Brown as secretary, and Samuel Cornish and David Ruggles as solicitors. Philadelphia in the mid-30s had 10 self-supporting colored schools. Cincinnati, in 1838, had two Negro schools deriving no aid from their white neighbors. In 1857, Wilmington, Delaware had two schools supported by Negroes, with considerable assistance from Quaker Thomas Garrett, who purchased the land site and hired the building contractor. For six years, 1854 to 1860, San Francisco Negroes supported a one-teacher school, touching a total of some 250 students. Baltimore, which outstripped any other city in free Negro population, had fifteen colored schools in 1859, every one of them self-sustaining. These efforts by Negroes themselves were supplemented by white individuals or groups. In Boston in 1815, the merchant Abiel Smith left an endowment of $4,000 for the Negro school held in the basement of the African Baptist Church. The Quaker silversmith, Richard Humphreys, left $10,000 in 1832 for the founding of a school for Negroes, which emerged five years later as the Institute for Colored Youth. In 1855, Homer Treat of Litchfield County in Connecticut left $4,000 for the founding of a colored school or for assisting needy Negro students, whichever the trustees of the fund decided. Germaine W. Logwood was one of the school fund executors named in Treat's Will. In 1840, the Ohio Ladies' Society for the Education of Free People of Color was founded at Massillon, its purpose to elevate the Negro and thus undercut the opposition to the abolitionist movement. The founders announced a second compelling motive. Long enough, surely, have we received the taxes of the colored man to help educate poor white children, and now let us, as a band of sisters, unite in vigorous efforts to repair their wrongs. In some of the schools conducted by this society, the salaries of the teachers were paid by the Ohio Female Anti-Slavery Society. The clergyman, Charles Avery, gave an initial donation of $25,000 in 1849 to found a college bearing his name at Allegheny, Pennsylvania, to train young Negroes for teaching and the ministry. Serving on the Board of Trustees was the abolitionist John Peck. In 1852, the General Conference of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, meeting in New York, had high words of praise for Avery, who was present. Later that year, a more concrete expression of Negro esteem came to Avery from Robert S. Duncanson, who gave him a painting, The Garden of Eden, for which the struggling artist had been offered $800. Privately supported colored schools, whether financed by Negroes themselves or by their supporters, were obviously not the total answer to the question of educational need in a day when publicly supported schools had become widespread throughout the North. Poor as a group and taxed like everyone else, Negroes saw no reason for their not benefiting like others from the public school system. Gradually, the states began to assume a grudging responsibility for the education of their Negro children. Schools attended by Negroes were all colored in student body and predominantly so in teaching staff. Such schools were invariably feebly supported in comparison with their white counterparts. The New York Board of Education, for example, spending $1,600,000 for sites and buildings for white pupils over a 20 year period, while spending only $1,000 for such facilities for colored students. A ratio of 1 to 1,600 although the school population ratio was 1 to 40. But it was not their feeble support alone that made segregated schools a prime target of Negroes and abolitionists. These challengers proclaimed that racially separate schools were relics of slavery, fostering prejudice and discrimination. In Massachusetts alone did the protesters crack the segregated school system with Boston providing the most spectacular victory, although not the first. In the 1840s, the Negro School in Boston, named after early benefactor Abile Smith and supported by the city after 1820, came under increasing attack, led by Negroes and abolitionists. In 1846, a petition signed by 86 Negroes protested the segregated school, terming it insulting. The primary school committee thought otherwise, defending the all-negro composition of the Smith School. However, two members of the committee, Henry I. Bowditch and Edmund Quincy, submitted a blistering minority report to which they appended a statement by an even more ardent abolitionist, Wendell Phillips, castigating the city solicitor for upholding the legality of a Jim Crow school. Three years later, another petition, this one bearing 202 signatures and characterizing the Smith School as a great public nuisance, was laid before the primary school committee. Again, rejection soon followed. Negroes then turned to the courts, Benjamin Roberts bringing suit in the name of his young daughter, Sarah, alleging that she had to pass five other schools before she could reach the one for Negroes. Taking the case for the plaintiff was Charles Sumner, assisted by a young Negro, Robert Morris. Despite Sumner's learned plea, the court upheld the school committee. But its victory was but a staying action. The airing given to the case had its effect on public opinion. Negroes, led by William C. Nell, kept up a drum fire against the school, holding indignation meetings and presenting numerously signed resolutions at abolitionist gatherings. The state legislature proved more responsive than the courts or the school board. Noting that Boston lagged behind the other chief cities in the state, the legislature in April 1855 prohibited the exclusion of any child from any school because of race, color, or religion. When the new school year began on September 3, 1855, A group of abolitionists headed by William C. Nell went from one schoolhouse to another to see the new policy in operation. There was no disturbance of any kind, the school committee having acted in good faith despite their earlier opposition. Once the schools were integrated, the Negroes held a meeting of celebration, also integrated. The person honored at the happy occasion was William C. Nell who received a gold watch, along with verbal bouquets from Lewis Hayden, physician John V. de attorneys Robert Morris and John S. Rock, as well as Garrison, Phillips, and Charles W. Stack. Because she had sustained an accident, Harriet Beecher Stowe could not be present, but she sent Nell an autographed copy of Uncle Tom's Cabin. At this joyous celebration, there was little mention of the Smith Colored School, which indeed had already closed its doors for lack of pupils. The admission of Negroes to white colleges, no Negro college was incorporated until 1854, was an abolitionist concern as might be expected. White reformers were highly indignant that some black co-workers had been denied admission to colleges. Thomas Paul, senior by Brown, Charles B. Ray and Amos G. Beeman by Wesleyan, and J. McCune Smith by both Columbia and Geneva. At the annual meeting of the New England Anti-Slavery Society in 1836 at Boston, a resolution was passed recommending that abolitionists support Oneida Institute because it was the only literary institution east of Ohio which officially welcomed Negroes. Other colleges had no stated policy barring Negroes, but, as an abolitionist put it, they encouraged a prejudice which created an atmosphere in which a colored student could not live. Colleges feared that if they enrolled Negroes, they would lose white students, particularly from the South. Oneida, located at Whitesboro near Utica, was not the first college to admit Negroes. In August 1826, of the year in which Oneida was founded, Amherst graduated Edward Jones, and two weeks later, Burden conferred a degree upon John B. Russworm. This book is continued on Cassette 4, Side
3: 1.